Today, as we look at Psalm 19, we're going to answer this question, how has God revealed himself? What a beautiful thing that God has revealed himself to us. There's a lot we can know about him, but how has he revealed himself to us? Well, as we look at Psalm 19, I want to start by quoting from Charles Spurgeon commentary on the book of Psalms, and here's what he has to say. This is beautiful. I quote, In his earliest days, the psalmist, while keeping his father's flock, had devoted himself to the study of God's two great books, nature and scripture. And he had so thoroughly entered into the spirit of these two only volumes in his library that he was able with a devout analysis to compare and contrast them, magnifying the excellence of the author as seen in both. We may rest assured that the true remains of creation will never contradict Genesis, nor will a correct cosmos be found at variance with the narrative of Moses. He is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work, and feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. End quote. What a beautiful thing. God has given us creation, and He's given us the Holy Bible, His inspired Word that is without error to reveal Himself to us. And that is the theme that we're going to see here, and we do see in Psalm 19. It's a magnificent psalm declaring that God has revealed Himself to mankind through two primary means, both in His creation as well as in the Bible. And so we see that this chapter tells us both of those. So let's, let's start with the first one. We see that God has revealed himself through his created universe. Let's read the words of the living God. Psalm 19, starting in verse 1. Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing, nothing hidden from its heat. We'll stop there, because that ends that section, how God's revealing Himself through His created universe. But we've got to ask the question, well, how do we know this? How, how, has, how is God revealing Himself through His creation, and how do we know this? Well, the, this psalm will help answer that question for us. Number one, we see that God's glory in creation is instantly recognizable. It's instantly recognizable. Because in verse 1, it's a precious verse, is it not? That the heavens declare the glory of God. By the way, the heavens there, what's that all about? That's referring to the sun, the stars, the planets, and other things up there. But what is their purpose? Why did God put all that stuff out there, which mankind didn't even know was there for centuries until we 
God's telescopes big enough to see it. But what's their purpose? Well, it says right there, God says so that it was to proclaim His glory, to proclaim God's glory. In other words, creation testifies to God. It's testifying about His existence, uh, His character as, as the Creator who made it all. And you might then ask the question then, what is God's glory? The heavens are declaring the glory of God, verse 1 says. But what, what is the glory of God? Well, that's His divine glory. It's the summation total, if you will, of all of God's holy character and His attributes. So if you kind of think of a, think of a circle and you kind of just pile in all of God's attributes and His character into that, that circle, we might call that circle God's glory. This is how God has made Himself known to mankind. So God's saying, the heavens, all those planets, the stars and the, and, and the suns and so forth, they are showing me, God's saying. It's, it's telling you something about me. Well, how did the heavens get here? Well, you know there's various theories out there of how all of that came to be. But instead of looking at theories, man-made theories, why don't we just go to the one who was there who made it in the beginning and see what he says. <laughs> well, the very first book in your Bible, Genesis 1.1, I've put the verses on the screen here for you, says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So who made it? Who made all of the stars and the planets and the suns and all that out there in the heavens? Well, God says, I made it. And then in Genesis 1, verse 2, it says this, that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So on the first day of creation week, God created some of the heavens. Some of the heavens on the first day there. And so, uh, but then we come to the fourth day, and we see that God finished creating the heavens. If, you, if we jump to verse 14, Genesis 1, 14, here's what it says. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. Well, in Psalm 19.1, it also mentions the firmament. See, the sky above, if you will. Some of your Bibles might say firmament. Sky, firmament's the same thing. But it says the sky or the firmament above proclaims His handiwork. 
What's that? What, what, what is the firmament? Well, the firmament or the sky is just referring to the lower atmosphere that we have around the earth. It's the clouds, if you will, the weather system that we have around the earth. Even that was created by God. And you say, well, what's its purpose? Again, <laughs> we like to think it's all about us. But it's not. Notice God says it is there to proclaim His handiwork. So when you look at the weather, and you see clouds, and you see rain, and you see clear skies, and whatever it is you see up there in the sky, you need to think of God. In other words, the, the truth about God's made known through the skillful work of His hands. See, as you are tempted to complain about the weather, like I am too often, tempted to complain about the weather, not when it's a nice day like today, but when you're getting rained up on, or you think it's cold, or you think it's too hot, or whatever it might be, just remember it's God who has made that weather, and it's all there to proclaim His handiwork. That might be helpful as you're tempted to complain. But how did the firmament come about? Well, again, Genesis chapter 1 answers that question. Verse 6 tells us, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And so God made the firmament, divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. So what's God doing? God is the one creating the atmosphere and the whole weather system on the second day of creation week. Well, how should this, this glorious truth in verse 1 make us feel? I know your feelings aren't the most important thing, but how, do, how does it make you feel? Well, I think Scripture really helps us to understand how we should feel. So I, I like what Isaiah chapter 40 says. I'll start reading verse 22. It's on the screen here. Here's what God says in Isaiah 40, 22. It is He who sits above the creation of the earth, that's God, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, God says, that I should be like him? says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might, and because He is strong in power, not one is missing. By the way, he's talking about the starry host there, the stars of the heavens. God's named all the stars. It's kind of presumptuous then that there's people trying to sell you a star did you know that you, you can actually buy a star and have your name put on it people do that very presumptuous because god's already named them 
it says right here, Isaiah chapter 40. So how should we feel then about this? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm quite humbled by this, and I think we should be humbled because I'm just a little teeny grasshopper as God sits up there above the circle of the earth. It ought to make you feel very small because guess what? We are small, aren't we? We are. God's very big. And because God is big, then the appropriate response is then to be humbled by this truth. Well, number two, we see as we continue this thought of God as revealing Himself in His creation, we see, number two, that God's glory in creation is constant. Constant. That's what verse 2 is telling us. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. So what's the point here? God's communicating to us through His creation. And this communication by God of Himself to us is something, it's unceasing. It's never-ending. It keeps coming. And that's why you get this imagery here. It's day to day. It's night after night. It just keeps coming. And you might ask the question then, what is creation communicating to us? Well, it's telling us about God's eternal power. It's telling us of His goodness, of His genius, His kindness, His orderliness, His beauty and His faithfulness, just to name a few things. And of course, that's what Romans 1, verse 20 is telling us. Here's, it's on the screen here for you. For His invisible attributes, namely... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. How? How? Romans 1.20 says so. It's ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Nobody's without excuse in this world. Nobody can say that God hasn't revealed Himself to me. That would be a false statement according to God. Because he says, everyone can see his creation, therefore everyone is without excuse. Now you might say, well, but, but I can't hear God communicating to me through his creation. Well, that's because the, verse 3 tells us that creation is a soundless sermon. <laughs> There's no words. There's no words coming from God's creation to us. You look at verse 3, we see that God's glory in creation is unspoken, but it's still accessible. So verse 3 says, There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Yes, no words, but notice, it's still heard. No words, but it's still heard. Well, have any of you ever heard a tree talk to you? Um, with words. All right, We're, We don't live in... You know, like C.S. Lewis's world of the Chronicles of Narnia. None of us live in Narnia where there's talking animals and other stuff that talks to you. None of us have heard a, a rock talk. If you have, then, well, <clears throat> may I suggest you go see a doctor, right? Because trees and rocks don't talk with words. But they do communicate, though. And so even though creation's not speaking with audible words that can actually be heard, God's saying their voice reaches all the nations. It is equally accessible wherever human speech and language is spoken. In other words, throughout the whole world. 
So no person anywhere in this world is without God's revelation of himself. And how is he revealing himself? Through creation. Through the rocks and the trees and everything else that he has created. Well, how else is God doing this? Well, number four, God's glory in creation is widespread. In other words, it's global. It's global. And that's what we see in verses, uh, verse 4 here. Notice their voice, creation's voice, goes out through all the earth. And their words, to the end of the world. It's global. It's widespread. Notice uh, some words in our text here. God's talking about this sound or this voice. Some of your Bibles might have the word line. If you see the word line in your text, it's just meaning sound, voice. The verse literally is saying that the entire planet is covered with the handiwork of God. The question is, do you see it? (laughs) Do you see it? Are you even looking for God's handiwork? Are you looking for God to declare His glory through His creation? You should be. And when you do see it, what's the proper response? The proper response is not to worship the Creator or the creation, but as Romans 1 says, we ought to be worshiping the Creator. Right? It's a bit like. It's, it's frustrating as parents sometimes. Sometimes parents give their children a gift, right? And in the process of giving their child a gift, they forget the one who gave the gift. They forget the giver of the gift. And, the, and sometimes children will just run off. They don't say thank you, and, and, and you might not see them for a couple hours because they're playing with the gift. And sometimes parents can feel insulted. It's like, what? I just gave you a gift. Can't you at least, you know, say thank you, give me a hug and a kiss, you know, something to acknowledge the, the giver of the gift? How do you think God feels? He gives us a gift of His creation. How dare we go and worship the creation and not say thank you and praise Him for what He's given to us? Number five. We see God, again, revealing Himself in creation here. But what's what's He doing? Well, God's glory in creation is enduring. It's enduring. The end of verse 4 talks about, In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like, and it it mentions things like a bridegroom, a strong man, mentions the sun at the end of verse 4. So in what ways is... God's creation enduring? Well, God's saying His creation is enduring like the sun, verse 4 says. If David is the author, which I assume he is, the human author of this text, then David illustrated God's enduring glory by pointing to the sun. So what is David doing here? David's comparing outer space to a tent. Look at the end of verse 4. He's comparing, he says, in them he has set a tent for the sun. So he's comparing outer outer space to a tent in which God has placed the sun to light up our solar system. By the way, if you've never watched that DVD, The Privileged Planet, it's a wonderful DVD. 
Uh, apparently, it's, there's also a book that talks about planet Earth. We're, we're just in the right spot. Yeah, any closer to the sun, we'd probably be destroyed. Of course, any farther away, we'd probably freeze to death. And God's put us exactly in the, the right spot with our sun, right, a good spot within our own, our own solar system, the Milky Way galaxy. It's a, it's a beautiful spot to be in. And it's no accident that God has put us here. But David goes on to talk about how creation's enduring like a groom about to get married. You ever seen a groom about to get married? Those of you who have been grooms, I know what it's like. You can always spot the groom in the crowd, right? What, what do you notice about a groom who's about to get married? Some of you have already started doing it. There's smiles coming on your faces, <laughs> right? The groom is the one with the biggest smile. It's like he's, there's this aura about the guy, right? And you get this idea even here in the text that this son's like a, a groom leaving his chamber. He, he's coming out of his room, his house. He's, he's going to meet his bride. Well, how does a groom come? <laughs> See, the groom's easy to notice because... He's the one who has this huge perpetual smile that cannot be wiped off his face. Grooms are radiant. They glow. They beam. They're bright because they're about to get married. So they stand out in the crowd. Don't you? I love this analogy that God's giving us here. See, His creation is like the groom leaving His chamber. It's enduring. Uh, the other analogy he's giving here, notice it's like a strong runner. Like a strong runner. Verse 5 says, So the son is also like a, a, a champion runner who is excited to run the race. He knows he's strong. He knows he cannot be beaten. And he loves running. So he's strong. He's tireless, in other words. He's enduring, always moving forward, and never growing weary. So combine those three analogies together. you got the son. You've got a groom who's about to get married, and you've got a strong runner. Putting those three together, what's, what is God saying? Well, God's creation, God's glory in creation is enduring. And so you, you get this idea that God's saying, hey, that he's like the noonday sun. It's bright, blinding. By the way, don't look at the sun. <laughs> you can actually burn the retinas of your eyes. By doing that. And so God's, God's glory is even brighter than that. His glory is radiant. God's high, exalted above mankind. He's tireless in his work and he's powerful in all that he does. Number six, we also see here in verse six that God's glory in creation is always at work in all places. Look what verse six says. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing, nothing hidden from its heat. So this is referring to the motion of the sun. And so David's concluding here that the sun's always rising and the sun's always setting. Now you might be coming up with things like, like some liberals like to attack the Bible, saying, well, we know the sun doesn't rise and it doesn't set. Well, don't miss the point, okay? We, we know the earth rotates around the sun, and, and so because of the, 
Earth's rotating and all that, that it looks like the sun's doing this, but don't miss the point, please. And so he's saying nothing's hidden from the sun's heat. In other words, the sun's always at work in all places, just like God is. See, the sun doesn't really go to sleep at night, does it? The, the sun's shining on the other side of the earth. It's, it is continuing to do its work while we're supposed to be sleeping. That's a great illustration. See, the glory of God's clearly seen in the sun. And the sun's something that we see. It's something we feel. We feel its heat. And so as it makes its daily journey across the sky, what is it doing? It's pouring out its heat on every person, every creature, doing its photosynthesis process through the plants. It's giving you vitamin D through your skin. It's doing all that stuff, which often we don't think a whole lot about. It's, but what is it? It's pouring out its heat, doing its work. It's making its presence felt. And that's the way it is with God, my friend. God is making his presence felt through his creation. And the proper response then is worship and praise of this great and glorious God, this good God. Well, in the first six verses of Psalm 19 here, we see God revealing himself through his creation. He's revealing himself through the universe that he himself has created. Now let's look at the next part of Psalm 19, and we'll see, second, that God has revealed himself through the Holy Bible. Let's start reading Psalm 19, verse 7. Psalm 19, 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. By the way, let me just stop here for a moment, because you're going to see different descriptions of the Bible. All right, in case you, you don't know this, there's things here we see like law, testimony, precepts, commands. These sort of things are all referring to the Bible. And then we're going to see what, what does the Bible do. All right, so again, that's... Just take note of that, starting here in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me then I shall be ashamed and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So verses 7 to 14 show us God's revealed himself through his word, what we call the Holy Bible. And particularly in verses 7 to 9, God is giving us six powerful descriptions of the sufficiency of His written Word. And so these descriptions 
should be very important to us. And you say, well, why are they very important? Well, while the sun and the sky and the planets and the sun, you know, all that stuff out in outer space there is revealing the existence and power of God, they're insufficient. See, no one can actually become a Christian and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins by looking at the sun or by looking at a tree. See, we need the Bible. Only the Scripture is going to reveal the way to know God personally. See, the stars and the planets and all that outer space stuff will reveal God, shows God, will drive us, hopefully, to the Scriptures, but they're insufficient. And so which one would you rather have? Well, for me, if I had to choose, which I would hate to choose, we ought to be choosing the Bible over God's creation every time because it's through the Bible we know God personally. So let's look at these six powerful descriptions of the sufficiency of God's written word. First of all, we see here that the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. So the Bible says, notice verse 7, it's that the law of Yahweh, all capital letters, Lord is Yahweh. The law of Yahweh is perfect, and that just means it's whole, it's complete, it's sufficient. It doesn't lack in any way, it's comprehensive. Well, we got to see how it is sufficient then. How is the Holy Bible sufficient? What can the Word of God do? Well, number look, verse 7 tells us, what the Word of God can do, how it is sufficient. Number one, it revives the soul. Your, your soul is that inner being that you have that lives forever. And so if you were to die today, your soul doesn't die. Your soul lives on. That's that part, the real part of you that lives forever. And God says, the Bible even revives that, your inner being. The Bible is so perfect and so sufficient that it can convert, it can transform, it can change, it can revive and freshen the entire inner person. Well, if you've ever read your Bible as a believer, you felt this. You know this to be real. This is one of the beautiful things of Scripture. And so it's, it's the reason, one of the reasons why we've got to come to God's Word on a regular basis because we need our souls revived. It's the whole reason why I love going to Bible conferences. It's the reason why you ought to not just read your Bible, you ought to, you ought to go to things like Bible conferences, listen to sermons, read good Christian books, and go to men's retreats and ladies' retreats and these sort of things as much as you possibly can. It's not a command, but... God uses those things. He's used them in my life. And so I'm going to be going to a Bible conference here at the beginning of June. Why am I doing that? Because I know every time I go, God's word is preached. God is doing this very thing for me. He is reviving my soul, refreshing me, transforming me. Number two, it's not just that. We see it, the Bible teaches the simple. By the way, every one of us is at least simple at some point. Because simple just means one who is gullible. By the way, there's a joke on that. Did you know gullible is not in the dictionary? 
And so if you believe that, then you're gullible, aren't you? Uh, and I, I've told that joke to particularly blondes who they're like, they're like, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Anyway, but gullible just means, and I'm telling you that joke to show you what is gullible, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it's a simple person who you can, you can tell them something or they read something or they see something on the Internet or the media or whatever it is, and, and they just they believe it. They just kind of latch on to it. And it becomes particularly dangerous in regard to false teaching. Too many people are that way, as the Bible talks about. They're just blown about by every wind of false doctrine. And so they fail to shut their mind to error. But there's, there's a, a help here, because God's given us His Word. Only the Scriptures can make a person wise or skillful in the issues of daily living. And that's another reason why we ought to be reading God's Word. If you want wisdom, if you want to be wise in, the, in your daily life, you want to have discernment, you want to know how to please God in, in your work or at home or wherever it is, you've got to be in the Word. You've got to know God's Word. He's, he's given you the, the knowledge and the wisdom there that you need. Number three, it gives joy to the heart. Verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. How is that? Well, it empowers the inner person with God's truth. Truth is not something to be shunned, to be ignored, to be hated. Truth is something to be cherished. Well, how do you feel after you receive directions to some place you can't find? Or have you ever felt like you're lost? Let me ask you that. Have you ever felt like you're lost? That's frustrating, isn't it? That is not an enjoyable experience to feel like you're lost. Or maybe when you were a child, you're in, you're in some big department store or a grocery store and you're, you can't find your mother. Whoa, that's not a nice feeling, is it? Where's my mother? Where's my parents? I'm lost in this big wide world. Right? We don't like that feeling. And even you might go to some big city somewhere and you feel like you're lost. How do you feel? You feel joy? Probably not. Well, guess what? Scripture is a sufficient guide. It's a road map, if you will. It gives us directions, allowing us to find the place that we need to go. It tells us where we came from. It tells us why we're here. It tells us where we're going in the end and everything in between. The Bible lays out the proper path through even the difficult parts of life. It steers a person to the right course in life. It can, and so this is good news, my friend. You can count on God's Word, the Bible, to always direct you in the right way. Unlike Google Maps. Any of you ever go, use Google Maps? Yeah, you, you know, these smartphones can be incredibly helpful, right? Or, or, or a navman or something like that. I mean, there was one time I was up in Auckland. This is, Google Maps has done this to me several times, so just beware. Right? Trying to find a friend's house. We're staying at a friend's house in Auckland using Google Maps. This crazy machine sent us to the wrong side of the motorway. So we're driving up and down this street in Auckland. We couldn't find his house. And I was like, <clears throat> I think Google Maps has done it to us again. <laughs> So we drove on the other side of the motorway, and we eventually found the right place. Don't trust Google Maps. Right? But God's Word's not like that. God's Word, you don't, you don't type in an address, or you, know, you don't come to God's Word seeking wisdom for something, and, 
we should never expect us for God's word, the Bible, to lead us wrong. It can't do that because it's based on God's character. He's the one who wrote it. So because of that, it's directing us in the right way. It tells us how to please God, and therefore that's why it gives joy. That's what it says. Joy is the result. Well, number four, it gives light to the eyes. The Bible's sufficient because it gives light to the eyes, figuratively speaking, anyway. Giving us light as we travel through this dark world. Companion passage, Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. By the way, that was written in an age before lamp, you know, the, the lamps you have, you know, where cities were all lighted up. You ever been out in the bush at nighttime without a light? Ooh, that can be an unpleasant experience. Never know when you're going to... I've done that before. Trying to walk around in the bush, no light, tr- stumbling over stuff. One of the things I, 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 I don't like about the New Zealand bush... Uh, there's a lot of things I do like. One of the things I don't like is when you're walking around in the dark... And you walk right through stinging nettle. Ever done that? Ooh, you know what stinging nettle is? There's a reason why they call it stinging. Because it stings you. And that sting can last for several hours. And if you don't see that thing, you don't have a light, you can walk right through it and it just attaches to your skin, injects its little poisons in your skin, and, and it hurts. Not pleasant. But a light can protect us. It can guide us. It helps us. So we're not stumbling over rocks or getting stung or whatever it might be. And God's Word is the same way. It helps us as we go through this life. It gives us light. And number five, the Bible is sufficient because it endures forever. It endures forever. That's verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And so it's never going to pass away. It nor will it ever need revising. It doesn't need updating. God's Word never needs editing. It's remaining permanent. It is relevant, always relevant. That's one of the beautiful things about God's Word because it's eternally true. Mark 13, verse 31 says, The heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. By the way, this... Just a little sidetrack here. This is one of the things that concerns me about so many churches and movements today. They're so transient. They're so changing. Kind of try to be contemporary, up with the times, you know, changing stuff all the time and dying off quickly in the process because they're not sticking to the Word of God. God's Word doesn't change. God doesn't change. So neither should we. We've got to stick to the truth here. And one of the other beautiful things we see here in verse 9 is God's Word is sufficient because it directs the life, directs your life. Look at verse 9. The end of verse 9 says, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So the Bible is so sure, it's so reliable, it's so stable that we can trust it to give us God's standards for our daily living. And because of that, it's truly sufficient. You don't need to go be seeking man's wisdom. Beware of that, by the way. Even beware of websites 
that have sermons. Beware of Christian bookstores that claim to have Christian books. Many of those so-called Christian books in the Christian bookstores are written by false teachers who are giving you heresy. It scares me when I hear some of you going and listen to sermons on the internet or going and reading Christian books. Wow, I, I always wonder. <laughs> I fear sometimes. I pray for God to protect you from those false teachers. Well, if you're in God's Word, then God's going to give you discernment. He's going to direct your life. Well, there's another beauty that we see of God's Word here in verse 10. We see the Bible is valuable. Not only is it sufficient, but it's valuable. In fact, we see various things mentioned here in the text that were particularly valuable in David's day in ancient Israel. We see that God's Word is more valuable than gold and honey. Look at verse 10. That God's Word, the Bible's more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So th- this just means that it's more valuable than gold. Gold's precious. The Bible is infinitely more desirable, it's infinitely more precious than anything that this world has to offer you. So if you were ever on that TV show where you're, you're stranded on some island with you know, other survivors and you know that show Survivor, if you haven't watched it, that's fine. But there's a show on TV called Survivor where people are allowed to, as they go off somewhere, they're allowed to take one item with them. I wonder how many of us would take a Bible. You know, sometimes people take a toothbrush or deodorant or, you know, something, whatever. I'm not sure what various things people take. But how precious is God's Word to you? Would, would the Bible be the one thing you would think of? Or if your house was burning down, would, would your Bible be the thing, you, if, if you could only get one thing out of the house, would the Bible be that thing? Is it that precious to you? Well, my friend, you've got to be careful that we're not fooled by Satan's lies. Satan in your flesh in this world will offer you substitutes. Things that, here, have this. This, this should be precious. <laughs> Advertisements on TV, right? That's what they're trying to do. You walk into a store. They're trying to get you to buy something that you can't live without. The info commercials, right, on TV. Right? Try to make stuff sound so good. You, hey, you can't live without it. You would be less of a person if you didn't have that. Right? They do that to you all the time. Try to make you feel insufficient some way. You're, you're lacking in some way. You need this. You can't live without it. And so we've got to be careful because Satan in this world will constantly try to deceive you, twist your mind into thinking its way. But God says, nope. Don't be conformed to this world. You've got to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you do that? Through the Scriptures, through the Word of God, the Bible. Well, the Bible's valuable because it's even sweeter than honey. Honey's pretty sweet, is it? In fact, the Bible is so valuable here because it can fully satisfy not just a, it's not a physical hunger, hunger here, but it's a spiritual hunger. It's a great source of pleasure and enrichment. That's the point that the Holy Spirit's making here for us. You ever had honeycomb, by the way? You ever gone to one of those shops and buy 
by a little block of honeycomb. If you've never had that enjoyment and that pleasure, you should. It will help you to understand what David is saying here. David was a man of the wild. He was a shepherd. How precious it is when you're out in the wild with your sheep, looking after your sheep, defending your sheep from bears and lions and who knows what else. How precious it was to David to go and find a beehive and scoop out some of that honeycomb and eat it. It was refreshing. It was a pleasure and enjoyable. David's saying, as great as that was, there's something even better, spiritually speaking. Spiritually speaking, God's word to him was valuable. It helped his spiritual hunger. And third, we we see not only is the Bible sufficient, Number two, that the Bible is valuable. But number three, the Bible is powerful. And so praise God that we see God's glory revealed not only through creation, but through His Word, the Bible, because it's powerful. Well, in what ways is it powerful? Well, in verses 11 to 14, we see, number one, that the Bible's powerful because it warns us against sin. It helps guard us against the greatest problem we have, which is sin. Look at verse 11. Moreover, by them, the Word of God, the Bible, is your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward. And so by the Scriptures here, we see we're warned against temptations, against sin, error, any other spiritual threat that might come our way in regard to our spiritual well-being. So what do we need to do? Take heed. Take heed to the warnings. Don't ignore them. So when God gives you warnings in the Scripture, take heed. Listen. So, By the way, this is one of the things you ought to be looking for as you read your Bible. Don't just look for promises. Christians love promises. You know, it's like they're they're looking for stuff that I can latch on to for today. By the way, you often rip stuff right out of its context in the process. But another thing you ought to be looking for is not just commands, not just the promises, but look for these warnings. God is, it's like he's, he's giving you a big sign saying, hey, the bridge is out. Beware, lest you go off this, you know, this cliff and die. It's, it's those kind of signs. It's a road sign, if you will, saying, beware, watch out. Take heed to the warnings. So the Bible is so powerful because it's warning us against sin. But not only that, number two, according to verse 12, is it's exposing sin. It's exposing the sin. Look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. So how how are you even going to know what sin is? See, before before I was a believer, it's, it's hard to know, isn't it? We love our sin. A lot of unbelievers don't even know what sin is. Well, verse 12 gives us a rhetorical question, by the way. The rhetorical question is there, who can discern his errors? Well, what's the answer? Well, there's an implied answer, which is this, that only the person who reads and studies and meditates on God's Word is going to know error. That's the person who will know. Scripture, again, is like that lamp guiding us, leading us, revealing faults where we need to confess sin, it's going to show us. 
where we've sinned. And then, then, of course, the proper response is to come to God, return to God, confess our sin, ask God to forgive our sin. But God's word is powerful in a third way. Notice verse 13, it restrains sin. It's so powerful that it can actually keep us from sinning. Because verse 13, the, the psalmist is praying, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So scripture is so powerful that it can prevent a believer from then participating in sin. How often has, have, have you done that? You've read God's word and some, something comes up during the day and God brings to your memory what you've read in scripture. God uses his word to protect you from sin. Hopefully that ought to be happening a lot. So, God's word's even powerful enough to keep us from willful sins. That's what it's talking about there, presumptuous sins. These are willful sins. Not just, see, you can sin out of ignorance, but we're talking about even the willful sins where, where you, for example, you, you, know it's, you know it's a sin to go look at pornography on the internet, but... You know, hey, you're alone. You've got the computer. You've got your smartphone or whatever it might be. See, God says his word is so powerful that it'll keep you from clicking and looking at the pornography on the Internet. That would be an example of a willful sin where you, you, you know, God brings his word to your mind. Scriptures like flee youthful lust. <laughs> comes, that's, that's a verse that comes to my mind a lot amongst others. So, you've probably heard this said before. It's a good saying. You might want to put this in your Bible if you don't have it there, that sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. That's the two options. See? Hopefully you want to refrain from sin, stay away from sin, because that doesn't please God. By the way, what is sin? Let's be clear on this. What is sin? 1 John says, sin is lawlessness god's defined it for us it it's lawlessness it is breaking god's laws god's the one who defines what sin is what is right and wrong and so say hey if you want to cape away from sin you need this book but if you want to just go on sinning doing your way your thing your way then you better get rid of the bible don't read it don't study it don't memorize it don't meditate upon it let it collect dust. And then your conscience will just grow seared. It will become easier and easier to say no to God. Well, we have an amazing book here, do we not? It's not just any book. We need to think about this. That Scripture is the sole instrument through which God has chosen to convict, to convert, to counsel, to comfort believers. Powerful. It's valuable, it's sufficient. It's the chief instrument which, through which God has revealed His own character and His very nature to us. And so you need to understand something, that the Bible's not just any book. In fact, God has described it as a living book. It is full of divine power. It is full of supernatural life. Hebrews 4 talks about this. It's alive, it's powerful. It pierces like a double-edged sword, even dividing the soul from spirits. 
all other books are just collections of dead words, but that's not the case with the Bible. And I love what Martin Luther said back in the 1500s. Martin Luther said this, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me, end quote. powerful and of course that's true not literally but what does it mean for us then it means the bible's always relevant you don't need man's wisdom it's always fresh we don't have to you know try to try to have a seeker friendly church come up with new methods new ways to do things to try to bring people into the church no god's given us the unchanging everlasting word of god It's never obsolete, it's never stagnant, and always relevant. And so, for you, my non-Christian friend, you need to listen to this closely. See, the Bible is so powerful that it discerns your heart. It possesses a living insight to your inner life. In fact, it's a beautiful thing when you come to a debate like we heard last week. We We have an inner sight into the atheist. See, the atheist is not really an atheist. See, Romans 1 tells us he's really a theist. He does believe in God. He's just suppressing the truth. That's what Romans 1 says, because God says that. And so the Bible is so powerful. We know we've even got insights into people's inner beings. Scripture contains a supernatural ability to cut into the innermost part of your soul. It penetrates far deeper than the felt needs. It goes to the very roots. Only the Word of God can reveal the depth of your depravity. Only God's Word can lead us to the true knowledge of God. So my friend, if you want to know who God is, I hope you do. If you want to know who God is, you've got to come to His Word, the Bible. Only the Bible can convert the lost soul. That's, that's what we just read about here. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Well, we see this truth elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in 1 Peter 1, 23, it's on the screen. It says, you have been born again, spiritually speaking, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So how dare we try to use any other means to try to convert someone? Here's the application. Use the Bible. Use the Bible in your evangelism. Don't use your wisdom. Use the Bible. Even Jesus quoted Scripture. What does that tell you about the power and the value and sufficiency of the Bible when Jesus used the Bible? Well, anyway, let's move on. My Christian friend, let me ask you this. Do you desire and long for God's Word? If you do, well... I hope uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 is helpful, because here's what it says. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. My friend, if you don't earnestly desire the Bible, the Word of God, then you don't understand what you're missing. You don't understand what you're missing. It's like, you know, it's like, uh, it's like life before broadband internet. Right? You remember what that was like? <laughs> so it might be hard for you to forget, or it might be hard for you to know. You know, it's like once you get something, it, we, we, how quickly we forget what life used to be like. 
you know, once you get broadband or, or ultra-fast broadband internet, you know, none of us want to go back to the snail pace stuff, right? We don't want that anymore. Pure spiritual milk. Do you long for it? See, only the Word of God can set you apart from sin. Only the Word of God can transform you into the image of Christ. There can be no spiritual growth in our lives apart from the Bible. So if you want to grow, my friend, you've got to be in the Bible, reading it, memorizing it, meditating upon it. And by the way, not only that, Scripture says it's able to counsel us to lead us into successful living. So what do you want to be? You want to be a failure? Well, of course you don't. Nobody wants to be a failure. We want to be a success. Well, guess what? The successful person heeds God's word. Let me read a couple verses from Psalm 119, starting in verse 24. It says, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Psalm 119, verse 98. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. That's what we want to be. But are you willing to put in the effort, put in the work? I know, it's not easy, is it? Our flesh, this world, and Satan is going to throw everything at you to keep you out of the Bible. But my friend, wait, there's even more here, because the Bible touches every aspect of the Christian's life. Did you hear me? I said every aspect of your life it gives sound instruction for holiness sound instruction for righteousness in fact look what here's what second peter 1 says verse 3 his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness so don't go seeking a better deal you're not going to find it what more can you ask for than that he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness and it's in his word and by the way, actually, there's, there's another way that God's revealed himself to us, and I'll end with this point. Let's not forget about the living word. Not just the written word, but the word, John 1 says. See, God the Father sent God the Son to this very small blue dot we call earth. God became flesh, John 1 says. He dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. Jesus Christ lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we deserve to die, and because of His incarnation, because he, of His becoming flesh, we can know God the Father then. Jesus said so. If you see me, you've seen the Father. And so what have we learned here, my friends? We've learned that God does exist, and that God has revealed Himself to mankind in, in, in two ways here. And these ways are unmistakable. They're undeniable. See, the universe reveals the fact that God exists. It reveals His attributes and His very things about Him that are unmistakable. But more important than that, the Bible has made known the way for you to know God and for you to know God intimately, personally, through, the, through His salvation. Oh, my friends, every one of us needs to respond appropriately to God's self-revelation. God has revealed Himself. So here's the question. He has revealed Himself through creation and through the Holy Bible. 
But are you responding appropriately? Are you recognizing His glory and worshiping Him and declaring His glory to the nations? Well, may God help us to do that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this glorious truth that You have revealed Yourself. So may we understand this proposition that You want us to know Your revelation. You want us to know general revelation as well as special revelation through creation and through Your Word. So may we see You, know You, and Your ways. We ask You to open up our spiritual eyes that we would behold wonderful things from Your Word today. And so as we go throughout this this earth, through our lives, may we not lose sight of You. and May we bring You honor and glory through these various ways You have revealed Yourself. So as we see people, may we see people made in Your image. As we look at the beautiful autumn colors on the trees, may we worship You. As we come to Your Word, may we see You. May we not just see stories. May we not just see commands or promises. May we not just latch onto things that, that we, we, we think are going to help our felt needs for today, but give us everlasting truth that will help us throughout our whole life. Because what we need most is to know You. So open our eyes and then give us hearts that are inclined to Your Word. Forgive us for our lazy hearts, our rebellious hearts that don't that don't want your word that run from your word that don't love your word so give us hearts give us inner beings that that can understand the truth of psalm 19 that we would know that the word of god is sufficient it is valuable it is powerful and may may that truth just soak us to the inner being that we would that we would read, that we would study, that we would meditate upon Your Word. But not just for knowledge's sake, but may it change us into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.